continuing these practices of incarcerating people for simply trying to alter their consciousness, trying to get some joy. That is the most ridiculous thing that we can think of. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Today, Mark Davis, who serves as the Mental Health Association's Chief Programs Officer and is a longtime mental health professional, is going to interview Dr. Carl Hart. Dr. Hart grew up in a low-income neighborhood in Miami where drug use was prevalent, and the truth is that he even used and sold drugs. However, that life led him to the Air Force and later to the esteemed role of Columbia University professor. Dr. Hart is acclaimed for his research, which some may call controversial, particularly in regards to substance use and the case that Dr. Hart makes for decriminalizing all drugs in America. And that's why we're thrilled that Dr. Hart is going to be a keynote speaker at Mental Health Association's annual Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up in October. His keynote is titled, Drug Talk for Grown-Ups. I love that. In it, he will be drawing upon his own personal journey and more than 25 years of experience as a neuropsychopharmacologist. Through his lens, Dr. Hart will convey to the symposium attendees how society is constantly misled about drug use and addiction. And he'll also explain how misconceptions about drug addiction distract our attention away from real concerns and lead to bad policies, immeasurable suffering, and countless preventable deaths. That's all to say that Dr. Hart's research fits perfectly into the Zero Symposium's theme this year. It's Resilience, Recovery, Rethink Mental Health. After all, Dr. Hart is truly rethinking mental health. Okay, let's get to the interview. The Mental Health Download starts now. Before we get into your eye-opening research, I want to know just about you a little bit. Why, why did you join the Air Force after high school? Uh, because uh, I suspect you know uh, I'm a black American and coming up in the South in Miami, uh, not much economic opportunities, uh, mm-hmm. poor education, uh, you know the consequences of the transatlantic slave trade still are uh, here. And so right. uh, it was a way to uh, get a job. And so h- how would you say that that shaped you? Uh, it helped you with employment. It, it helped you get out of the, I'm going to just say it too, I'm Afro-American as well. Uh, it, it helped you to, it was an escape to get out of the hood. How did that shape the person that you are today? Yeah, you know, like, I, I don't like to say, like, Air Force or anything was an escape out of the hood, but it implies that I'm trying to get uh, for away from my people, and that wasn't it. It just provided economic opportunity, and it also provided educational opportunity, and it gave me an opportunity to see the world a little bit and see how things were done differently. Um, my, all of my time was spent overseas, primarily in the UK, and it got gave me a chance and opportunity to see how uh, black people could be treated differently in a different space. You know, uh, coming up in the South and only being in the South, um, you know, it's in these subtle ways, you are told what your place is and you kind of know your place. But in the Air Force, uh, it allowed me to see that that's not necessarily your place, you know, and you can do some other things if you put the work in and uh, if people provide opportunities for you. And so that 
being in the UK really helped me to see things a little differently, even though the UK had their problems and they still do. Uh, but it was, uh, it was for me better than being in the American South. And then allowed, that allowed me to go to school and gave me, uh, the sort of resolve to be able to give something back to my community uh, once I got the skills. Right. Um, you know, doing some uh, some research on you, reading about you, Dr. Hart, um, and I have your book, uh, High Price, here in front of me. Um, you, you went on to get your doctorate in neuroscience because you wanted to solve the drug addiction problem. And and I, I recall you stating that you, you had this very... Um, this wonderful, idyllic kind of plan that you could truly solve the the drug addiction issue in your neighborhood or, or you know, around the communities in which you grew up in. Do, do you still think that we, as American, we can actually address, effectively address the, uh, the drug addiction issue that we have going on? Uh now you point out uh, rightfully so uh you know when i got these skills and then i could see i could get a phd uh, and i wanted to study neuroscience to figure out what was the brain mechanism responsible for drug addiction and i thought that if i found that mechanism i would be able to solve the problems in my neighborhood because at the time i thought that the problems were it was related to drug addiction i thought drug addiction was a problem problems like low and uh, I mean high unemployment, uh, poor education, crime, all these things I thought was related to drug addiction. And uh, but then later, you know, as I studied more, I learned more, I learned that I was wrong. Um, drug addiction has little to do with these problems. The society is telling us that the problems are related to drug addiction, but that's a lie. Uh, the problems are the problems are the same thing that they always have been. I mean, it's like you have to make sure people are educated. You have to make sure people have economic opportunity. You have to make sure people are plugged into a society. I mean, if you add drugs or anything to the mix, uh, that's uh, that will exacerbate the problem uh, or it will cover the problem. But the problem uh, oftentimes don't have anything to do with drug addiction. Um, uh, we've just been using drug addiction addiction as a distraction not to go after the real problems, which are right. far more complicated than drug addiction. Drug addiction is a relatively simple thing to solve. Um, right. But 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 we we pretend uh, that it's drugs and it, it's not drugs. Mm-hmm. Got you. I hear, um, you know, you addressed in various uh, components of the social determinant factors. Uh, you mentioned, you know, access to health care, jobs, employment, uh, mental health care services, uh, access to food, uh, assistance, child care services, all those other supporting factors to help address the, the real problems, as you stated, if I'm hearing you correctly. That's absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's uh, uh, let's do a little time traveling here, Dr. Hart. If I could send you back to to 1986, when Congress passed the laws punishing crack cocaine trafficking in ways that were as you will know, a hundred times more harsh than, than those for powder cocaine. What, what's the most powerful statement that may have swayed the lawmakers in your favor? In my favor? Yeah. What, what would be the most powerful uh, information, uh, whether it's scientifically based, that you would have presented to, to sway the lawmakers' mentality or their narrative in, in regards to how they address the issue? 
Well, you know, in 1986, I was caught up in that uh, misinformation wave. So I believed what Congress believed. I believed that crack cocaine was the main problem that we faced in communities like the one from which I came. So in 1986, I would have been equally wrong, but somebody who was right uh, at that time and but was ignored was somebody, James Baldwin. James Baldwin said in, uh, I think, December 1986, he was like, you know, we got this wrong and the only people who are going to pay the price are poor black people and people who are on the margins. And so James mm-hmm. Baldwin argued that we should have regulated the drug market uh, because uh, the people who are wealthy and the people who have means are still going to get their drugs. The only people who are going to be hurt are poor people. And the people who are going to make a whole lot of money off of these laws are law enforcement, prison industrial complex. All of those people, he pointed out, will get paid. And he has been absolutely right. So if the war on drugs never happened, what, what, what do you think our society would look like today? Um, the war on drugs, uh, that, that means a lot of things to a lot yeah. of people. Like the war on drugs really began uh, at the federal level in this country in 1914. So if we think about if the war on drugs would have never happened, then Americans would be living more consistent with the Declaration of Independence, where uh, the Declaration guaranteed us life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, even if that pursuit of happiness meant that people were allowed to uh, use drugs in their pursuit of happiness. That meant that drugs would be regulated and people could be like adults, like like alcohol. They would be, they could go and buy high quality drugs and they know how to do it. Education would be, um, uh, education would be better surrounding these things. We wouldn't be lying about these things. So, uh, these things would be available like alcohol and right. adults would be responsible for their use. Right. Right. Okay. So um, would, this is, we would have a, a, we would have a large budget available for uh, helping people in terms of all of those psychosocial uh, services that they need. Right. Having this uh, over a billion dollars a year go into well, actually over $30 billion a year go into uh, this sort of war on drugs. Right. Put it in the right, put it into treatment. Uh, and as you said before, in many of your talks that I've looked at and, and, and make sure that the, 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 the funding is used uh, properly to, to help people with their issues and not to go to law enforcement and building more jails. That is correct. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of a, a personal question in, in a sense. Um, uh, what, what are some of your most absurd and just plain wrong comments or views that you've heard of, over the years about your research? About my research? Yes. Uh, uh, I guess the, the, one of the criticisms is that I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have an agenda, um, that sort of thing. And, um, it's stated as if that somehow causes me to lose credibility. Of course, I have an agenda. My agenda is to get people to use evidence to support their position. <laughs> right. Uh, if it makes <laughs> us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's one of the major sort of criticisms that I get. Uh, okay. 
And so you've also, in regards to your research as well, and I, I love this statistic here and, and how you've, you've backed it um, with your research and digging into the details. You've shared it that 80 to 90 percent of, of people who actually use illegal drugs or drugs don't really have a drug problem. Um, but, but why do Americans think the, the very opposite? Well, uh, because uh, that's exactly right. Americans think the opposite because um, we, like many people, especially us, we are hypocrites. And so uh, let me break that down. If we are hypocrites, then we have to justify our um, behavior uh, that is inconsistent. And so when we think about uh, for example, uh, people say, why are you arresting those large numbers of black folks uh, and disproportionate number? Why are you arresting those large number of people? Why are you not allowing them the liberty and so forth? We have to justify it. And so we can say those evil drugs have changed those people. Those evil drugs made those people behave in this way. And in our movies, our documentaries, our education, our news, our media, everything follows in telling these stories to justify the horrible crimes that we commit against our people. Now, right. these crimes are things like the mass incarceration. Uh, these things are the mass subjugation of various groups. And so the media, uh, the documentary filmmakers, all of them play, all of them play a role in justifying this horrible crime committed against people. Um, in one of your talks, uh, also, you you reference um, a study that was done with lab animals, um, and you uh, basically address some, some fallacies or some myths around that study about lab animals. Um, you know, you stated that they, having a, an attractive alternative will not self-administered drugs until death if, if, if given an alternative. Uh, and then you follow that up in your own research uh, with human subjects. Can you, can you tell us a, a little bit about the people you studied and, and what you discovered thanks to their participation? Yeah, so we go back to the animal studies. Uh, when I was a college student, we were told that animals will self-administer and given the opportunity, they will self-administer drugs like cocaine, heroin, amphetamine. They will self-administer these things until death if you allow them unlimited access. And then this was given as evidence of how powerfully dangerous these drugs are. But mm-hmm. then, you know, as I learned, there were like other studies that were showing that if you gave the animals an alternative, and you gave them unlimited access to these drugs, they wouldn't take these drugs until death. In fact, they would engage in these other behaviors like um, interacting with a sexually receptive mate or playing with toys or sweet treats. And so we, we tried to extend that to the human laboratory. We brought people into the lab, people who were, the first study, people who were who met criteria for a cocaine use disorder, cocaine addiction. Um, and we gave them an opportunity to choose between a hit of crack, a nice hit of crack, and some monetary amount. Uh, in the first study, I think it was like $5 cash, $5 uh, merchandise voucher or something of that nature. What we found was that when you gave them a choice of only something like $5 versus an unlimited access to crack, they took 
the money and the drug on about the same number of occasions. Mm -hmm. And then subsequent, subsequent studies, we found that if you increase the monetary amount to something like $20, um, they almost never take the drug, they take the money. And so what it told us is that people who meet criteria for a substance use disorder behave rationally, uh, especially when they have options. These folks can and do behave rationally. And so that's just like anybody. Right. Uh, so it gave us, it provided evidence that, uh, that these drugs were not uh, as addictive as had been touted and that these drugs conform to the normal behavioral principles that we have always known. Right. So this is really fascinating. I think it's very enlightening to individuals who don't have a medical background or haven't studied this, um, uh, the, uh, the addiction uh, impact on individuals who engage in, in drug use. Um, so this is really fascinating, the, the results uh, that you um, discovered here. Uh, what, were the results what you expected before the study actually began, that, that individuals would actually uh, engage in a, in a more uh, attractive alternative um, uh, and opposed, as opposed to drugs? Were, were, were the results what you expected or were they opposite? No, the result w were not what I expected. I mean, uh, um, although some of my colleagues and people um, were smarter than me and they, they would have expected this, but uh, personally, I, I thought that, uh, you know, I, had, I was still caught up in that mid, that sort of web of misinformation in that I thought crack cocaine was so addictive that uh, you gave somebody who met criteria for crack cocaine addiction that they would they would take drugs no matter what they would um, any opportunity to take crack cocaine they would do it and so I thought that um, the five dollar option wouldn't have phased them but I was wrong I was dead wrong and I'm yeah. you know and uh, but if I had read the literature more carefully uh, and really studied the, the principles of behavioral change, I would I would have predicted right. But uh, I, I was wrong. I was wrong because yeah. I was ignorant. Yeah, this I have to be quite honest. When I I looked at your study and the results, I was I was pleasantly uh, su surprised as well. Um, I thought, wow, I think we. We got to give, um, I don't know if credit is, is the right word, but we definitely have to look at addressing this through a different lens is kind of where it drove my thought process. Um, so it was really fascinating uh, research you did there. Um, I guess along those same lines, uh, you, you talk a lot about poverty and, and crime and, and uh, drugs and the intersectionality between those three. What in the communities across the country, Doctor Hart? Um, when you pull when you when you pull drugs out of the equation of, of crime and poverty, is is that the true answer? Because I've I've heard you address that in many talks before. Uh, yeah, we have to we have to pull drugs out of the equation, uh, and we have to look at people's behavior. You know, uh, a second ago, you, you pointed out that, you know, people not uh, aware of what the, they're not in the medical community. This is really not about the medical community because the medical community, too, has screwed this up. 
Um, this is about sound behavioral analysis. Sound. Uh, this is about psychologists, social workers, all of those folks getting back to their roots and looking at the individual and the individual's behavior and leave the nonsense alone, like uh, speculating about what's going on in the brain and what the drug is doing here. Leave that nonsense alone and look mm -hmm. at the individual's behavior, the individual environment, the circumstances. All of those sorts of things are far more important. And if people mm -hmm. just simply get back to the careful behavioral assessment, um, right. they will actually help to solve people's problems. Yeah, well, I, I'm uh, maybe I'm uh, I'm biased here, uh, but again, I, I've watched uh, several of your talks, and like I said, I'm uh, uh, reading through your book, and I, I have to I respect and highly value and appreciate your um, complete transparency and your honesty and, and your your passion to really get to the core of what we're struggling with and. And I and I've also viewed you, and I hope this is okay to say, but I I, I think I've seen you quite frustrated and and agitated over, I guess the the most polite way of saying it is the ignorance around the whole addiction issue, and that's refreshing to me personally, uh, to hear someone just speak openly and and plainly and honestly about how to really strike to the core of the addiction issue that we're addressing across our country um, and, and discontinue the, the, the trivialization of it, if you will. Um, so, so thank you for that. I, I really do want to acknowledge you and, and, and express some uh, appreciation for you just being boldly truthful and honest uh, when it comes to these issues. Um, uh, along those lines, you you've, you've talked about selective targeting and 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 racial discrimination and how and and how they've contributed to the uh, horrifying statistics that you know one in, in three black males can expect to spend time in prison and and by contrast, uh, white males it's about one in twenty. So, do you want to just comment a, a little bit about that? Yeah, you know. Um... Just yesterday, I just got back from uh, Ghana, and you know, many Americans know. Well, I'm sorry, many Americans don't know because they've been miseducated that the transatlantic slave trade that resulted, um, that happened in this country, uh, uh, many of the enslaved people, the vast majority came from Ghana, and so I went back to Ghana. Uh, there and I just got back and this is the year return where African-Americans can go to Ghana and get dual citizenship and participate and so forth. And so when I think about transatlantic slave trade and I think about what we're continuing to do in this country with our laws and our sort of racial discrimination in the enforcement of these laws. When I say racial discrimination, I mean this precisely as people always uh, dilute the term. I mean this, that where a disproportionate numbers of people are targeted because that uh, maybe it might not be because of every race, but, but it, it happened as a result, a disproportionate number of people of this specific racial group are negatively impacted by actions, 
actions right. of law enforcement is something um, that's racial discrimination. And that's what we have going on when it comes to uh, drug law enforcement and many enforcement of a lot of laws. But drug law enforcement is like my expertise. And so, um, yeah, that disturbs me because it continues this same, this long, awful legacy of the transatlantic slave trade mm-hmm. and further subjugates uh, a selected group of people. And we know it's happening in this country now. And we use language to um, decrease the impact of this awful, awful practice that we have engaged in. And so, yeah, you sense right my frustration. I am frustrated Mm -hmm. because we are using science um, uh, or scientists to further the goals of this horrible discriminatory practice. And we are using professionals um, to do the same sort of things. And so uh, when you read as much as I do and know as much as I do about this here, our, our literature and that sort of thing, you, it's so clear that it's wrong. And I don't want to see further generations negatively impacted uh, by uh, these awful practices, uh, especially mm-hmm. when we can be working to enhance people's uh, joy and time here on this earth. And so um, continuing these practices of incarcerating people for simply trying to alter their consciousness, trying to get some joy, that is the most ridiculous thing that we can think of. Continuing with that uh, kind of narrative, uh, you, you've also made some suggestions for reversing uh, the trend. And and so talk to me a little bit about uh, meaningful employment to to make a a difference. Yeah, we we can think about, uh, like, I have a job. I love my job. And um, um, I know I have to get up every morning and do it because I love it. And it allows me to take care of my family. It makes me so proud to be able to support my family, all of these kinds of things. And so uh, if we, we want to make sure that people have the skills to be able to be gainfully employed and they can do the same. And then they, we will, they will have a stake in this society to make the society better to uh, make sure that they protect what we have in this society. Uh, those, those folks, um, uh, but we have to make sure they're plugged in, have to make sure they have education, have the right skills. Uh, we have not, we have not done that. We have, I mean, we can take, shift some of this focus of the war on drugs and these other awful policies to make sure that people have economic opportunities. I'm thinking about like, uh, this is just one simple example. Right now, 10 states in the United States have legalized weed for recreational purposes, created a whole burgeoning, this burgeoning um, uh, economy and these economic opportunities for a a number of people. Uh, We can do that on the federal level and make sure that people get plugged in, have jobs, and then also people have jobs in um, providing this plant, this psychoactive plant to folks uh, for their joy. Um, and so um, th- that's where we, we can create jobs there. Uh, right. and we certainly have in those 10 states and those 10 states like Colorado and Washington, they have no interest in going back because it's a lot of economic opportunity and they're getting people plugged into our system, into our values and so forth. So that's a great thing. Hey, one of the things I think that that you spoke 
to in many of your talks is, is also the decriminalization of, of all drugs. With that, if we, if we were to go that route, should we expect more deaths from overdoses and, and, and an increase, a rise in crime? So let's just be clear that we already have decriminalization for like wealthy white folks in our society. We already have that, right? Then decriminalization simply means that people are not going to jail for drugs. They might get a warning. They might get, uh, that's a personal drug use. They might get um, an administrative fine, but they're not going to jail. That's all mm-hmm. criminalization means that we will stop arresting people for personal amounts of drugs and we will uh, we will stop doing that. That's all that means. So when people start talking about more overdose and that sort of thing, uh, the, again, they are conflating the issues and crime. They are conflating the issues. Uh, number one, like drug overdoses um, are caused primarily because of our repressive drug laws. Let me give you an example of that. We can think about opioids. One of the things that has happened with the opioid market, the uh, heroin is the opioid that people who use illicit opioids are primarily seeking. Heroin, um, one of the things that's happened with the illicit market is that illicit manufacturers have been tainting heroin with something like fentanyl or some more potent opioid because it requires smaller amounts, and um, that means that if they lose that some supply, they don't lose as much money. So you stretch your product by having more potent opioids in the market. Now, the people who are using these drugs, unbeknownst to them, their drugs has another more powerful opioid. And if they take the same amount that they usually take for their heroin, some cases they overdose, in some cases they die. Um, now, that sort of adulteration of the heroin market occurred as a result of our restrictive drug laws, not because of the drugs themselves. That's, that's, that's on us. We could easily regulate the market and make sure that there's some sort of quality control, just like we did during uh, when alcohol prohibition was over. During alcohol prohibition, we had a lot of illicit, adulterated alcohol in the market. And people died because of this. They got alcohol poisoning. They got sick, very ill. But when we regulated the market, like now, today, you don't see any adulterated alcohol. That, that, all of those related problems went away. Um, and so the same is true with uh, our drugs like heroin and other uh, so-called illicit drugs. So it, this is the problem of the drug regulations, not the drugs themselves. I got a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up here, Dr. Hart. Again, I want to respect your time here. Uh, what could we just real quickly, what, what, what can countries like Portugal and the Czech Republic teach us about substance use? Yeah, so there are about 30 countries around the world that have decriminalized all drugs. Again, decriminalization is just treating personal drug use like a traffic violation. You might get a warning, you might get a fine, but you're not going to jail. Portugal, the Czech Republic, Spain, all of those countries are a part of those countries that have decriminalized all drugs. Uh, now, one of the things that we have, to, what we can learn from them is that, well, you know, we don't have to incarcerate our population. But I don't think we're really interested in learning that lesson from them because 
one of the things that we should understand that the countries that have decriminalized drugs, all drugs, and have better drug policy, these countries are primarily hom racially homogenous countries. Mm. That is, they see these people, they see drug users, they see these folks as being their daughters, sons, their brothers, their sisters. Unlike in the United States, we have racial diversity and we see these people as being others. And we right. are comfortable with subjugating them and mistreating them. And so really, we don't really have an interest in um, making sure that those other people uh, have the, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Along those lines of uh, decriminalizing drugs and us learning from uh, other countries, you've mentioned, which I, which I find quite fascinating, you've talked about free uh, drug purity testing sites, uh, similar to what they have in the Netherlands and, and Spain and Switzerland. Uh, talk just a, a quickly about that. And I also want to know your thoughts about needle exchange programs. Yeah, you, you raised the issue earlier about overdose, and overdose occurs primarily, or a large part of it, a substantial proportion of people who overdose uh, do so because they get adulterated substance. They don't know what they're, what's in their substance, and this could be dangerous. And so places like Spain, places like uh, Austria, they have implemented these testing sites where these are free anonymous drug testing sites where you can submit small amounts, small samples of your drug, and they will give you a chemical breakdown, readout of what's in your substance. And then mm -hmm. you, you can see if it contains an adulterant or something that's uh, potentially dangerous, you know not to take it, or you know to scale back your use. Um, and so this has really helped in terms of preventing but uh, potential drug uh, damage or horrors or harm. Um, and so um, United States, we have this technology, but we just haven't shared it with our population, in part because we are being moralistic about this and saying that people shouldn't alter their consciousness with this particular drug. It's okay to alter your consciousness with alcohol. That's fine, but not with these drugs. That's, right. uh, that's arbitrary and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And and again, do you have any position on, I, I guess this uh, this kind of falls in line with maybe your stance related to the purity test and science, but what are your, your thoughts about needle exchange programs? Uh, needle exchange programs, of course, they are uh, important and valuable and they have helped to decrease blood-borne illnesses because, you know, they decrease the likelihood of people sharing needles where we get these various types of blood-borne illnesses and you get abscesses, you get all of these awful things that are not the drug, but just related to uh, people not having clean works, people not having access to appropriate equipment. And needle exchange programs deal with that. And they also mm -hmm. provide a lot of education. So. Uh, needle exchange programs are a valuable tool uh, in this. Um, I just wish that we didn't need them and we, people right. could just go to their healthcare professionals and get what they need. 
Correct. I, I agree. I just the reason I it was curious as to your perspective is because, you know, I, I hear so much negative talk from individuals that or I question kind of their understanding of the value of it and, and the laws that uh, don't respond favorably to needle exchange programs. And so I was just very curious as to what your stance on it was. Um, so this is the last question, Dr. Hart here. Um, if the Zero Symposium attendees, when they go back to their communities, what would be some of the key points uh, from your keynote that you would like people to remember? Uh, one of the major things that I want people to know is that if the vast majority of people who use any particular drug don't have a problem, then we can't blame that drug. It requires us to look further past the drug, and it requires us to look at the person, to give that person a comprehensive assessment and try to understand what's happening with that person, what's happening in that person's environment. That's number one, I hope that these people uh, get from this. Number two, I hope that these folks understand that people who use psychoactive substances to alter their consciousness are doing so in, and they're doing so seeking uh, joy, uh, seeking relief from anxiety, from whatever. It's done with these good intentions in order to be happy. And that should be a goal that we all seek happiness to be and so these people folks who use drugs are not somehow morally corrupt somehow morally inferior it has nothing to do with that it has to do with them seeking a joy that's that's another thing i hope they understand and i hope also that they understand that we have used this drug issue to further marginalize those people on the margins And we are participating in subjugating those people. And it's not right. And our role in in subjugating these people are not that different from the role of the slave owner who had subjugated uh, the enslaved people. And so I hope people understand that. And I hope that these folks can look at themselves and look at their own drug use, whether it's alcohol, whether they've smoked weed in the past, whatever, I hope they can look at their own drug use and see themselves and the people who we have vilified. Well, this has been highly valuable, uh, Dr. Harig. Um, We truly appreciate your time and your expertise, and I look forward to uh, greeting you and escorting you here at the Mental Health Zero Symposium uh, this coming October. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and you have a good day, Mark. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Yeah. So, wow. What an interview with Dr. Carl Hart. Um, While he has such uh, a unique perspective uh, when it comes to addressing the substance abuse issue uh, and addiction that is ravishing so many communities across the country, um, his his narrative, his viewpoints, his uh, scientific research all really uh, pushes the narrative for us to really rethink how we're uh, trying to tackle. And I am 
emphasize trying to tackle the drug addiction problem and the substance abuse issue across the country, but how uh, unfortunately, uh, we're we're missing the mark somewhere uh, because we're unfortunately not trending in the direction that we need to. And I think Dr. Hart really brings forth a a another attractive alternative uh, for which we should maybe think uh, and give some merit to at least to start to address this uh, epidemic um, in a different fashion or form. Uh, because at this point right now, uh, we're seeing an opioid addiction. Uh, heroin use, uh, the introduction of a very dangerous chemical fentanyl uh, introduced into our communities, and it's uh, killing people. Uh, the uh, drug use is up, uh, drug overdoses are up, uh, and the communities are across the country. And uh, I think Dr. Hart really brings uh, to the forefront uh, a new and a fresh perspective that uh, What's and what's critical about his perspective is it's not just some arbitrary, uh, random uh, viewpoint that he's spouting out. It, it's actually scientifically based. It's research. It's studied uh, to to look at different ways to effectively address this issue of addiction across the country. So uh, we really look forward to having everybody at the Mental Health Zero Symposium here in October. You can go to zerosymposium.org for all the details. So as we always say here at our agency, go do good things.